it, does he ask his patients like, oh, did you have a good trip this fall? No, it's have a good trip. See you next fall. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's good. That's better. That's a, that's a, that's my dad's joke. That's What's the next one? I want to hear it. Um, okay, so I couldn't figure out why this baseball was getting bigger and bigger, and then it hit me. Okay, that's pretty good. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matt. Hello, Stuart. The internal medicine, this is the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with my co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Brigham and special well, guest, hello. <laughs> hello, Stuart and special Hi. guest host, Dr. Shreya Trevetti. Hello. Hey, Shreya. Shreya. How are you guys today? I'm, we're doing well. And uh, I guess since this is your first episode, we should have you tell the audience Maybe give them a one-liner about yourself. That might be the most succinct way to get them to know you. All right. Let me take a stab at my one-liners. Um, okay. So I am a, a young female past educational history significant for undergrad at Villanova. Go Nova. Um, then a Fulbright Scholar at Geisinger Commonwealth Medical School and now a resident in New York City. Uh passionate about primary care and medical education and currently applying for medical education fellowships. That's pretty good. Excellent. Yeah. It's pretty I wanted to add like there. a status post in there, but I was like, what are my status <laughs> posts? Uh, status post medical school. Status post 30 hour call. Like, yeah, I don't, it'll explain any delirious symptoms I have during this episode. Right. And I think you told me that you may or may not have had a mild TBI at some point. Is that true? Yes. Actually, the case you're going to describe is literally my life. I, th- I was like, wow, is he trying to make fun of me? Does he know me? I'm Because I'm a 29-year-old female. And in med school, I used to, before I lived in New York City, I used to drive a Honda Civic Coupe, which if you guys don't know, it's a, two-dar- mm-hmm. a two-car door. Um, so every time I'd have to go and get my huge step one book from the backseat, I'd repeatedly hit my head on the, on the car door. So I was like, oh, does Matt know that I have... <laughs> I had no idea. It's, as I said on the show, this is a a family case. Uh, But Stuart, I think we should move on to feedback because this is a a longer episode and I want to get to it. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got some feedback from a listener here and uh, it seems quite applicable. So it says, hi, everyone. Great episode on eating disorders. I really gained a lot from it. Hmm. Thinking of the case of the medical student (laughs) in the episode... Can you do an episode about ways to maintain overall mental health as a med student and resident? It seems to be a a pretty big topic at my hospital right now. Every call room has pamphlets on, do do we even use call rooms anymore? Yes. I mean, we do? I don't know. The little little bit of sleep you can get, it's magical. They actually, they have to, they they make, uh, for a residency program, you have to have a call room actually. I see. I think I, the, the residency program that I teach at, they don't do overnight call anymore. So it just yeah. seems like an antiquated thing now. Anyways, I digress. <laughs> so it says, uh, let's see, every call room has pamphlet, pamphlets on resident wellness. And my resident friends mentioned that their program directors have been doing wellness lectures and surveys. And I'm currently working on ERAS. So I'm constantly trying to work on self-care, but not always succeeding. Just a thought. Thanks for knowledge. Best, Helen, MS4. Thank you, Helen. And uh, yeah. did you did you catch her PS there, Stuart? 
No, no, no. I, I, I guess I, I could put it there. It says, <laughs> I meant that you guys are MTV back in the 90s when I had to sneak watch it because my parents thought MTV was evil. Wait. So Helen... Is she saying that we're evil? No. Helen was, Helen was the one who gave us previous red feedback about how we were MTV in a world of C-SPAN. And then... We wrote back to her and she said, because she responded to our episode and she's saying- No, that, no, no. She's basically insinuating that people think we're evil. <laughs> right. That That's what I got from it too. Yeah. <laughs> what is she hiding from? I don't know. <laughs> I guess, okay, I get it. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't read it close enough. So she's saying that she has to hide our show from her parents yes. because they think it's evil. evil. <laughs> and she's talking about maintaining overall mental health. Uh, she gives Matt. us like the her feedback emails are amazing. Let's see how many shows in a row we can. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Helen. send us more. Uh, I would like to uh, just quickly announce, re- remind you, and for our announcement section, if you haven't done so yet, sign up for our mailing list. You can get the PDF copy of our show notes, which seems to be very popular. Uh, well, sometimes we put figures in there and algorithms. Based, uh, we did that for anemia and some of the other shows recently. And, uh, yeah, so sign up for that at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And also thank, I wanted to just thank everybody who applied to our, to be a curbsiders correspondent. I'm not sure exactly when this is coming out, but sometime in mid September to late September, we'll be notifying people and asking them to get involved with the show. So let's do some picks of the week. Hmm. Is it, uh, that music time? Oh, wonderful. Shreya, as a, uh, I, I think as the new one on the show, I'd like you to give your pick of the week. All right. As a newbie, um, I actually picked an article. I don't know if that's been done on the podcast before. But there was a really good New York Times article this week called You'll Never Be Famous and That's Okay um, by Emily um, Esfani Smith. And it goes into how many of us think that like a meaningful life is about something epic or extraordinary. Um especially because like the internet and social media is so kind of um, infiltrated with like, that's the norm being epic and amazing, but it has, it goes through like really good examples of how maybe life isn't about that. And it's more about finding meaning and maybe pausing as Dr. Ratner will get into and pausing and maybe redefining what gives you meaning. Um, And like, while yeah, it's great to have idealistic aspirations at a young age. Um, you know, there's now growing research saying that meaning is actually found not in success or glamour, but sometimes in the mundane. Um, and so it, it just like the takeaway is like, if you can get a, your sense of purpose and the smaller things of life, then, you know, touching people or, or connecting with people, then, um, that meaning is long-term and more durable. And I, I just thought it was a great message. It, it's targeted towards like young uh, college students, but I think mm. a lot of us at various stages of our career can use that pause and ask ourselves, you know, what is it that's giving us meaning? I think that's great. Right. You know, I, on, on, on the flip side, there's actually a, a YouTube video that I think is, is helpful for those of us that are in kind of a managerial role who are managing those I mean, you're kind of alluding to like the millennial mindset where you, you want to make that that impact. You want to make it quickly. And if you don't make that impact quickly, you feel like you're left in the dust. It's actually by Simon Sinek. It's called Millennials in the Workforce, a Generation of Weakness. It's it's 
it, it's a it, it kind of helped me to understand where my residents and med, medical students were coming from and it helped to pro- provide them some uh, a kick in the butt so to speak to to show them that they they are making meaningful changes it's just not as quickly as they want to make those changes so you're, you're not going to change someone's a1c from 14 to 7 percent <laughs> in one one visit for example it's going to take time and right. investment it's a marathon and right. my pick of the week is the ted radio hour and specifically the there's a recent episode they did on education and they they interviewed sal khan who does does khan academy and a couple other really forward-thinking people that are that are kind of shaking up education. And that's something that on this show, we're interested in kind of expanding into other forms of social media and media like video to try to just improve the way that we educate learners and give people access to information. So that TED Radio Hour is great in general. That's episode specifically I will link to in the show notes. That's awesome. The, the Khan Academy has been like a huge inspiration to me and like my love for medical education. I'm all yeah. about flipped classrooms if if you guys are familiar with that. So I, I'll plug that also. I have yeah. no clue what you're talking about. <laughs> a flipped classroom. No clue. I know you Anyways. know what she's talking about, Stuart. Well, I'm going to introduce the episode, which is on concussions. What about my pick of the week? I actually I, had I one. thought you just gave one. it. You said Simon no. Sinek. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, Okay, Stuart. my pick of the week because it, it it's it's so um, applicable to who I am. There's a a, a new comedy on uh, on Netflix. It's called Atypical. I've watched the first three episodes or not or or not. Uh, I, I have actually. Thanks. So I've watched the first uh, three episodes. This is a, a a dark comedy that's about a relatively high functioning Asperger. A teenager who is seeing a therapist who recommends that he starts dating. And so I started watching this and I realized, my gosh, this really describes a lot of my childhood. <laughs> and uh, you should watch it. It's uh, quite I, unfortunate. Stuart, I'm going to watch this show now and it's going to be so much more enjoyable imagining you as the main character. It's, 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 it's me before I got married. Yeah. If if there was no such thing as instant messaging or texting, I, I probably would have never have dated or got married because it was impossible for me to communicate. Like the, <laughs> what we're doing right now, absolutely impossible. You could thank Sasha for that. I could say, uh, of spending a lot of time with you in the past few years, you you do a good job, Stuart. Thank you. Uh, well, let's let's introduce the episode here. It's on concussions. I knew next to nothing about this topic before reading about it and having this long and very informative discussion with Dr. Evan Ratner. Dr. Ratner has been practicing emergency medicine in San Antonio, Texas for almost 30 years. He has held multiple leadership positions, including chief of staff and head of emergency services at Methodist Specialty and Transplant Hospital. Dr. Ratner has served as the on-site medical director for international sporting competitions and is the current medical director of nonprofit organization Gridiron Heroes. San Antonio Magazine has chosen him as a top doc. Texas Monthly has selected him as a super doc. And the San Antonio Business Journal honored him with the Healthcare Hero Outstanding Physician Award. Dr. Ratner is one of the first physicians in South Texas certified in concussion management. He is the author of the concussionguide.com blog and continues to donate his time and expertise caring for injured athletes. He is certified by the Texas Education Agency to provide continuing education to coaches, trainers, parents, and students about the importance of proper concussion awareness and management. So, so Matt, you'll, you'll really enjoy this. So Shreya and I tried to come up with a pun 
but we got way, 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 way over our heads. So before I get ahead of myself, I've got something I want to show you. So without further ado, here you go. It's raining, it's pouring, the old man is snoring. He went to bed and bumped his head and couldn't get up in the morning. Perfect segue. <laughs> so it's raining, it's pouring. That is, that's right. That probably is about a, an old man who died of a concussion. <laughs> It's horrible. <laughs> and, he couldn't get to the hospital in time. And th- and that's probably, yeah, okay. We do talk about some urban legends on this episode. I think you'll find it's really insightful. So without further ado, here's our discussion with Dr. Evan Ratner. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is your well, host. Hello, Matthew. Hi, Stuart. Uh, yeah, as Hi. always, interrupting. This is your host, Dr. That's Matthew Watto, here with Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham and our... Our guest host, Dr. Shreya Trivedi, and I'm pretty sure I pronounced that right. That was perfect. Hello. Yeah, well rehearsed. And with us tonight, our guest, Dr. Evan Ratner. Hi, Dr. Ratner. How are you? Good. Thank you. How are you doing? Good. And we, we already agreed ahead of time we're going to kind of go informal tonight. Uh, so we're just going to go first names. So we'll, we'll refer to you as Evan. And uh, Evan, I'd like to start off by asking you, question I always ask people, if if you had to describe yourself as a one-liner, kind of like we use in the hospital, what would that sound like? Um, well, you know, that, that might be the hardest question I tackle tonight. Um, <laughs> but I would say as, as, as a husband, as a father, an ER doc and concussion doc who realizes now that I should have been wearing a helmet for a lot more of my athletic endeavors as a younger man. What was your sport? Mm. I read that hockey and football for boys and soccer for girls are like the the ones where they get the most concussions. But what was your sport? So it was football, uh, but also uh, skiing, kind of extreme skiing, and uh, off-road mountain biking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you might have been asking yeah. for it there. I have one of the one of the uh, least interesting sports. I was a springboard diver and had a concussion from that. I hit the the springboard once and hit my uh, my knee once. Knocked out six Ooh. teeth. It was horrible. Yikes. Both of you can relate to your patients a lot better now. I don't I yep. don't think I've had a concussion, so I feel left out, but uh <laughs> <laughs> you right. can live vicariously through yeah. Stuart. Yeah. So so Evan, as a, as an ER doctor, what do you wish every PCM knew? What's one advice you could if you could sit down with every PCM in the entire nation and tell them as an ER doctor, what would you want to tell them right now? Well, I would tell them that for the most part, uh, every time we hear the word concussion from an ER doctor, it's usually preceded by the word just, as in your CT scan is normal. It's just a concussion. And I would want them to urge that to understand that that just has no business being there, that a concussion is a real injury. And even though it's not as tangible as, as, an, as a sprained ankle or as a broken bone, it is still a very real injury, and it still has very real uh, needs to be taken care of properly, both in the short and the long term. And Stuart, you're, that, that kind of moved us towards the main topic, but I do want to ask some more of our just kind of standard questions. Shreya, did you have a favorite question you wanted to ask before we move to the main topic? Yeah, and this kind of ties along to what Stuart was asking, but more geared towards someone like me, a younger trainee. Um, what's what's one of the best advice you've ever received as a learner, a teacher, um, someone that started their own business? 
a piece of advice that I really like to pass on is, and I learned this in the in the emergency setting is, don't just do something, stand there. <laughs> and there's there's a lot of impetus to react to things, especially in emergency department. You know, the adrenaline's going. People are asking for for guidance. You want to guide. You want to activate everything that you've learned. You want to make a decision, whether it's something financial or something personal, and we're really built and designed to react. And sometimes the best thing you can do is just do something. So just stand there, even just for a breath or two, so you can kind of formulate it and that you're not just reacting, you're actually doing something thoughtfully. Wasn't that uh, stand there? Wasn't, wasn't that the 13th rule in the house of God? Uh, I think that one was um, first take your own pulse. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of similar, along similar lines, but I, I like that a lot. That's pretty good. Stuart, did you have Same. a question that you wanted to ask up front here? Um, you, you know, I, I, I do like asking the book question, and since uh, Paul's not here to ask it, I'm going to steal it from him. So, uh, Evan, if there's one book that you think that every physician should read, what would it be and why? And and to bail you out in case that question's too challenging, just any book that you've recently read that you think you, that you could recommend to the audience. Well, right now I'm in the middle, middle of Zero Belly Cookbook, which is the part of the Zero Sugar series because there's far too much of me. Um, <laughs> or as I like to call it, I am gravity enhanced. Um, <laughs> but I've actually really enjoyed, and all all politics aside, uh, I have enjoyed the Killing series, whether it's Killing Reagan or Killing the Rising Sun uh, series, um, and that there have been really good historical, factual novels that really make reading history and understanding what was going at the time uh, much more enjoyable than trying to get through just a just a, a big history book. And so uh, the one I just finished reading was... Uh, uh, Killing the Rising Sun, and I thought that was an excellent book. As far as one that all physicians need to read, um, I don't know that I have. I don't know that I have one, but the television series um, Scrubs is probably <laughs> something that every physician should watch. That's a good recommendation. I, I like that. Completely agree. And uh, just to exonerate myself, the thirteenth rule in the House of God is the delivery of good medical care is to do as much nothing as possible. Yes. There you go. I love it. Love that that might be my favorite rule. I, I kind of like the, if you don't want to find a fever, don't check for a fever. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I don't know the exact wording, but I, I like that one. Well, I, I think medical nihilism has a real place. And it's always nice. We, we, again, we react. We do a lot of things unthinking because we've had a lot of training to do so. And sometimes nothing is better. But to make yourself feel better about doing something, you have to put a label on nothing. So you're actually just doing something, just not necessarily reacting. Right. No, I, I really like that mindset. Like you have to change your mindset to be like, okay, pausing is actually doing something and that giving that meaning. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's really great for, for me, at least when I think, I think of my knee-jerk reactions and right. to pause a little bit more. Yeah, we, we, we tell medical students and residents that when they're interviewing to pause and obviously in the right, right spots. You don't want to pause in some weird, awkward moment, but <laughs> we don't use that ourselves when it comes to medical decision-making to allow for some time for re- reflection. I think it's, I mean, it's very true. I find that sometimes if you just pause and look thoughtful, people are like, Oh, 
he he knows the answer or she knows the answer, whatever. But uh, you're just like, oh crap, I don't know this. <laughs> so <laughs> all about faking it until you make it. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's. I do that a lot. I think we could. Uh, I, I think we should could move on now to talking about concussions. And Evan, I like to just remind you that we start very basic and then we kind of build up. Uh, and we we de- will definitely ask you to define terms. And we don't assume that everybody knows what we're talking about. So to start basic, how would you uh, actually let me let me give a case first, and then we'll then we'll get into the basic. Uh, I'm forgetting my own show. Let's we'll start with the case, and then we'll get into some of the basics here. And the case is from Cashlack Memorial Hospital. It's a 29 year old female with no significant past medical history. She comes to the primary care office. It's been a little under 24 hours after she accidentally struck her head on the metal of her car. She said she was reaching in to get something, and I don't know, but she gave herself a real good ringer. She experienced uh, temporary altered consciousness. It lasted about an hour, along with a headache. She had no nausea, vomiting, speech or vision changes. She rested at home last night, but didn't feel up to reading or watching TV. And then she drove herself to your office today. Uh, this this is a case, actually, it was a family member that came to me, one of my sisters, asking me what she should do. And I was like, I, this was a couple of years ago. I was like, I don't think I've actually, ever actually treated a concussion. Um, at the time, I hadn't. So first of all, let's just start at the beginning. How do you define concussion? And I know there's a lot of terminology. So how should we think about this or how should we, what's the appropriate term to use? There is a lot of confusion about what kind of terminology. And I think concussion works just fine. And we have to get away from mild concussion, severe concussion to start with. So if a concussion has really severe symptoms, but it only lasts 48 hours versus a concussion that has ongoing headache or dizziness, it's mild, relatively speaking, but it lasts six months, then which one is mild and which one is severe. So every concussion is different, and I think the word concussion is a great way to define it. You know, typically when we're talking about concussions, we're talking about a form of traumatic brain injury, and sometimes you'll hear that abbreviated as TBI. Um, A lot of times you'll hear it as mild TBI. And what they mean when they say the word mild is they don't need a neurosurgeon. So. Uh, there's not something penetrating the head. There's not a big collection of blood squeezing the brain. Um, and it's something that they can't really see on a CAT scan. So another way of looking at that is it's not anatomic, it's functional. So there isn't something that needs to be fixed with a knife or a scalpel. There's something that needs to heal on a much smaller, on a cellular level. And that's how I look at concussions. So it's an abnormality an injury of how the brain is functioning. And when you think about it, the brain controls everything we're doing. So depending on what part of the brain is involved is going to help kind of determine what kind of symptoms you're having. So every single one of them is completely unique and different. I want to go and and kind of get back to this patient. And is there any other history that you would want to get from this patient aside from what I kind of gave you in the prompt that was the 29-year-old female, she's coming in about less than 24 hours after she hit her head and she had some altered consciousness that she described to you. What else do you want to know from her? So it is really important to try and get a sense of the mechanism of injury. 
And it's remarkable how many people will come in with what is really a fairly low energy impact. Um, you know, they bent over and they hit their head or they're in the kitchen and they stood up, but the cabinet door was open, so they bonked the back of their head. Uh, as opposed to a, a high-speed car accident or, uh, or a horrendous tackle or someone uh, heading the ball. So even even what we would think of as relatively minor amounts of energy can still cause concussions. And when you evaluate someone and you evaluate what kind of symptoms they're having, how they're lasting over the first 48 to 72 hours is kind of less important than where they were before this happened. If someone presents with confusion or someone presents with headache, it's really important to know where they were before this all happened. So was she having a sinus headache before this happened and now she's still having a headache but it's a little bit worse? Or is this a completely new symptom? And does she have a history of any kind of symptoms before? And specifically, when we look at head injuries, repetitive head injuries and concussions, that that history of previous head injuries, especially the timing of them, can be really, really important. Yeah, that I, I had read that in uh, one of the one of the review articles. It was in the Southern Medical Journal. It was talking about ath- athletes and just saying, like, you know, it's important to note that this person have the the baseline depression or headaches or uh, we'll get into it, but a lot of these other post concussive symptoms that that might pop up and. When when you do you use any tool and this is now twenty four hours I know what you might use on the sideline might be different but twenty four hours out if you're a primary care doc is there a tool or an app that you think would be helpful for for the audience to bring out to try to help evaluate and quantify the degree of symptoms this person has? A really important tool is your ears, whether it's emergency medicine or primary care or sports medicine or anything else, how important it is to get a really good history, to listen to what the patient's telling you and not just go, oh, bumped in the head, okay, this is what she's had, she's got a headache, oh, oh no, wait, she's had some confusion. Mm-hmm. It's really important. Everything that you can learn, most of it's from a good history and physical. But for her in general, one of the things I'd like to know, uh, assuming that it is kind of a low energy thing, is is this a brand new set of symptoms for her, or does she have anything as a baseline? No, at baseline, very very healthy, very active. Doesn't it's not not usual for her not to feel like watching TV or reading a book, and and she doesn't get headaches. Mm-hmm. So those are all really important. So things like uh, bright lights, loud noises, um, uh, lots of people. Um, all of those things can be signs of concussion if those have changed. Uh, for her, so after you get the good history, you want to do a really good physical examination, and you want to focus on some of the things. So you can do some simple questions, ask her to remember a few things at the beginning and at the end of the examination. You want to do really, you want to really kind of bore down on her eye movements and on her balance. Um, those are things that are really important, and whether or not she's following instructions very well, too. When I'm kind of trying to look at their reaction time, because that can be affected as well, is I'll say, okay, I'm going to throw you my pen, or I'm going to toss you my pen, and then I do it. I don't give them time to think about it, and we'll see. I mean, if they, you know, if it taps them in the chest and it falls to the ground, or if they kind of make an attempt to catch it, that's all really valuable, too. And, you know, I'm not whipping the pencil at them. I don't want to impale them. But it's a great little test that no one ever taught me in medical school. Um, 
so those are the things. So balance, uh, part of the physical examination, uh, eye movements, how they can coordinate oculovestibular movements. And then the one test that I use uh, is called IMPACT, and it is a computerized neurocognitive testing. It takes about 25 minutes to run, and it really gives me good insight as to how the brain is functioning. Is uh, the, the neurocognitive testing, that, that's something that would have to be purchased, it, it, so it wouldn't necessarily be widely available if, unless you're a primary care doc who's seeing concussions on a really regular basis. Is it, is it pretty expensive to, to purchase that? It's really not, um, it's not that expensive, but if you're not looking at a lot of them, a lot of the subtlety in interpreting them uh, can be elusive. So it's something, if you're not seeing and taking care of concussion patients regularly, it's really not something you need to invest in. Um, It's good to be able to identify them, and you can identify the patient's with a good history, with a good physical, especially doing some of those specific testing. Um, And then oftentimes it's best to refer to someone who just does a lot of them. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, whatever the case may be, I mean, I want to be taken care of by by the physician who sees these all day, every day, and is really, really good at them. So, Evan, let's say you're a rural physician and you don't have the ability to consult with your local concussion expert, or maybe you are the local concussion expert because you are the only medical healthcare practitioner within a 50-mile radius, is there any utility to following these scores over time, or is it only for screening purposes at the diagnosis of concussion? No. So it's pretty worthless as a screening tool. In fact, the, the way these tests should be run properly is you take one at some point when pre-injury, and it's called a baseline. Mm-hmm. And and then if there's an injury, you test again, and you look for differences for the before injury and the after injury. And those differences are can be very, very sensitive. And typically, in the past, when someone had a concussion, um, it was really just some doc saying, yeah, I think you've had a concussion. You feeling okay? All right. Looks like your concussion's resolved. And it's because we really didn't know any better. But even with specific testing the, the, with the balance, with the oculovestibular eye movements, all that stuff, we've gotten better at picking up really subtle problems, subtle changes on the physical examination. We know the specific questions to ask on physical examination, so you don't really need the test as much. And the test is not standalone. It's really meant to be used as part of that. But typically that's the last thing that gets back to normal. So if you have access to it, that's the best thing that you can do because you want to get one of these serially to follow and see how they do. And uh, I have a, I have a, a patient that I'll tell you about in a little bit uh, that really describes that very well. You, you mentioned the eye movements. I just wanted to see if you could kind of point out what, what testing are you doing? You're just doing the extraocular eye movements and pupil reflex, pupillary reflex, and then, what what are you looking for that would commonly be abnormal and be a red flag? So I look for horizontal or vertical nystagmus. That that can oftentimes be abnormal. One of the things that really shows up frequently is uh, accommodation. And so you take your finger, you have them follow their finger, you kind of move it around, and then you just get it closer and closer to their nose. And in, and in patients who have been concussed, oftentimes you'll see 
they'll kind of grow cross-eyed on you and it's a little bit as they're tracking your finger closer and closer. And then if you stop it, one eye kind of floats back out. And so for eye movements, that's the one of the, one of the ones that I think is, is really important. Um, it's a subtle test. It only takes less than 10 seconds to really do, and it will oftentimes give you a lot of information. How about the balance? So the balance really simple. Um, so uh, basically can do your, your plain old Romberg. Um, and then, uh, just in, to explain that I'll have someone stand with their feet together and their, and their hands over their chest and they'll see if they can tolerate that. If they can, I'll have them close their eyes. Um, and if they're tolerating in that, then I might give them gentle, uh, rapid pushes in the chest or on the shoulder or even in the back and see how they tolerate that really well. And I'm talking gentle. We don't want to smash them into the wall. Um, <laughs> And then we have the modified Romberg, uh, and I use a U.S. Coast Guard certified flotation device. Uh, it's a little orange square, uh, about 18 inches on a side, about two inches thick, and it's the perfect compressible foam. And I'll have them stand on that and see how they do on that. And then I'll have them, if they tolerate that well, then I'll even have them take uh, one foot and hold one foot, so they're balancing on one foot on the ground and then one foot on the pad. And you will see huge differences um, between that. And it's not just the moments. It's not just it's whether someone can do it or not, because some people can do it better than others. In fact, you'll oftentimes see better balance in better athletes. So if you have a person who's not particularly athletic, their, their testing results on a good day still may be a little bit wobbly. But you can see the differences. There shouldn't be humongous differences between the floor in the pad. So that's one of the things I look at. And then I'll also have them, if they're tolerating the eye movements, they're tolerating a simple um, heel-to-toe walk, uh, a tandem gait with eyes open, a tandem gait with eyes closed. Uh, and again, just a few steps is usually all you need. So it, the exam goes quickly. Uh, and then something to test the ocular motor where you have them stand. You hold their thumb right up in front of their face, uh, obviously at arm's length, and you have them pivot uh, at their waist, back and forth, about 150 degrees, keeping their eyes on the thumb as they're going kind of click, 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 about that speed. Um, have them do that for 20 seconds, if you can, 30 seconds, and then you have them stop. And if they lose their balance, that's a bad sign. Most people will still be pretty stable after doing that. And so those are some of the specifics. I'm just mm. thinking these sound really fun to watch. And I'm glad you clarified that I shouldn't be having like a 90-year-old lady stand on like an 18-inch piece of orange foam and see if she could stand on one foot. Uh, but anyway, that's just my uh, sixth sense of I humor. <laughs> I believe that the impact is up to age 59, though, too. I, I, I know that this isn't part of the impact, but um, I'm sure he's seeing much younger patients than we're used to seeing, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shreya, I think you have a question. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to clarify my understanding. So this is like really wonderful in terms of questions and exam to do. Um, but it sounds like we're doing this to track changes over time because you you can anticipate gait disturbances, visual deficits, as you were saying, um, with ocular motor, motor movements and accommodation. But uh, we're using this to kind of track over time. And maybe would that lead us to imaging or not? Can you kind of talk about that a little bit more? Sure. So most patients who I take care of with a concussion don't need imaging. And um, 
uh, it's kind of nice to see that before, and you know, I, I, I'm hesitant to say that uh, that you guys are all quite a bit younger than I am, and when we first realized we could start CAT scanning everybody and see a whole bunch of stuff, we started CAT scanning everybody and seeing a whole bunch of stuff. Some of it was significant, some of it wasn't. But now we're saying, hey, why do we need to do a CAT scan in a pediatric patient uh, if we don't really need to? And so a lot of the rules, a lot of the Ottawa ankle rules, the Canadian head rules, all those other things, they make a lot of sense. So in the person who's not getting worse, in the person who hasn't had a prolonged loss of consciousness, and the person who can grip things and who can actually talk and uh, isn't vomiting and, you know, sick people generally, especially kids, look sick. Um, uh, and so for someone who's not getting better after a period or someone who's definitely getting worse, someone whose symptoms are getting more severe, they get imaged. But I would say that's less than one in 20 end up getting any kind of imaging who come in for a concussion. And the, I, I wanted to just read out the Canadian CT head rule for the audience here. It was a GC uh, Gla, uh, Glasgow coma scale, if I could speak, less than 15 at two hours after the injury, open, depressed, or basal or skull fr- fracture, greater than one episode of vomiting, or age greater than or equal to uh, 65 years old. And those are, If they have any of those, then you should get a CT head, according to the Canadian CT head rule. For the most part, no one wouldn't get a CT of their head. <laughs> <laughs> or, I mean, they're 65-year-old who has a significant head injury. These aren't really kind of subtle ones. These, right. these, are, these are pretty obvious. These are slam dunks. Yeah, and if you think back, everyone, oh, you need to get a CAT scan. You need to rule out subdurals and subarachnoids. Well, in otherwise healthy people, so I'm not talking about um, – I'm not talking about the the 104-year-old woman with heart disease and who's had previous strokes and who's on uh, blood thinners, you know, who turned around and headbutt someone else mistakenly. I'm not talking about those. But in otherwise young, healthy people, especially people who are playing sports, if they have some catastrophic anatomic injury like a subdural, it's really – I can count on one hand over the last 30 years – the amount of times that I've got a really unexpected CAT scan result in imaging all these people. Mm-hmm. And even those, there was a finding, but it was one that was treated conservatively and not necessarily surgically. Mm-hmm. So we, we always hear about these horrible disasters, uh, the missed subdurals. But those are in a very different patient population. And so in otherwise younger or healthier people, you don't just generate these problems without some sort of reasonable history and physical exam findings. And even if it's just a headache that's getting worse over a week, you know, okay, it's getting worse. It's not getting better. Hmm. Is there a reason why it's getting worse? Are there allergies getting worse or is there something else going on? So those are the ones that you worry about. And it's not catastrophic to get a CAT scan that ends up being normal. But I think the number of people who are being treated for concussions you know, the the overwhelming majority really don't need imaging. It's not helpful. I just had a quick question. You mentioned the blood thinner, and that's the one thing I noticed. It's it's not in the Canadian um, Canadian rule that uh, Matt just went over. And I feel like every time uh, I've been on a team and say someone's on a blood thinner, even if they're a middle-aged person with AFib on warfarin, um, neuro exam's normal, 
history as otherwise benign, they always end up getting a CT scan. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Does everyone with warfarin and some kind of head trauma get a CT? Yeah, they do, because there are lots and lots of lawyers out there. <laughs> if you picture yourself sitting on a wooden chair surrounded by a, a half-height wooden fence, looking up at some guy in a black robe, and then just across the way is another little fence with a bunch of people staring at you like you're a moron, because the family was saying, they could have a subdural, why don't you get a CAT scan? And you said, no, I don't think that's necessary. And the CAT scan, of course, is just around the corner. Um, and then, of course, the bad response. So we overorder a lot. Um, but those are the people who are at higher risk. So it's not really overordering if it's reasonable. And, in, and a lot of people who are on thinners, you can get these subtle findings. But again, don't just do something, stand there, because more and more we're seeing that a lot of these things are handled conservatively, not operatively. So it's important to identify them. And a huge risk factor is someone who's on blood thinner. So in those patients, but we're not talking about 18-year-old uh, high school football player on warfarin. So it's, it's, it's kind of a different group. For the older person, I'll tell you where it comes really into play, is the older person who slips and falls at home. And for a lot of these patients, especially the ones who have some sort of baseline dementia or some cognitive problems, you know, they're moving along and then all of a sudden something happens and, you know, they're looking weird. They're talking weird. They're not remembering things. They're maybe stumbling a little bit more. You do a CAT scan on them and thankfully there's no bleeding there's no anatomical lesion, but clearly they are more altered than they ever were. And a lot of times in those, they don't ever come back up to their baseline. And so, you know, the, it's kind of a, we all like to think that a lot of chronic disease is just a gentle slope and it goes down, but especially in the elderly and especially with head injuries, it's like a staircase. Mm -hmm. You're doing fine, something happens, all of a sudden they're on the next step. And something they're doing fine, and then all of a sudden something happens and they're four steps lower. And so it's, it's not a gentle slope. And so those are the ones that you have to be careful about. And those are also the ones that I worry less about giving a dose of radiation compared to an 11-year-old. Evan, I wanted to take this opportunity to kind of just uh, recap and, and make sure that, that I'm following. This, this patient we were talking about was 29 years old. The, for your young, healthy patients, let's say patients under 65 without a lot of medical comorbidities, not on blood thinners, and even most concussions that, that we're talking about are really in the younger, kind of active, sports-related sports we're not talking really about military blast injuries. That's kind of a different talk. And you're you're advocating the history and the physical exam. We went over both in pretty good detail. That's that's really where you want to focus. And if you can get if it's if it's a sports team and you have a baseline neurocognitive test, then that's more helpful than than just checking it after the injury and then following it out because you don't know which you know which deficits might have been there already. So you're not really advocating that we have to pull out some calculator and track a score at each visit. We kind of just document the symptoms we find, the exam we find, and then follow that out. Is that am I am I tracking okay here? You are. Um, the only real adjustment to that I would make is. If you have a baseline and you get one that's back to baseline and 
their symptoms are fine and their physical exam is fine, and you're great, you're done. Right. If you don't, it may take one more visit so you kind of see that plateau. So they're still very useful tests, even if you don't have a baseline. And unfortunately, um, most kids don't have a baseline. Not yet. Uh, it depends. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you live in the Pittsburgh area, you have a baseline and you're a high school athlete. Um, here in Texas, not so much. I, w I wanted to just kind of take a little bit of a left turn and ask you, go back to our case here. The urban legend that you can never let someone with a concussion go to sleep because they'll never wake up. Can you comment? Yes. So all of us have training and we've had to be up all night uh, as part of our training. If you keep me up all night or wake me up every hour, every two hours, I'm not going to be thinking right, and I'm going to be grouchy, and I'm probably going to be snappy, and I'm not going to have the same fine motor skills that I otherwise would. So basically, all you have to do is sleep-deprive me, and I'm going to start looking like I have a head injury. <laughs> so <clears throat> my advice is don't wake them up if you got to watch them. So if you can't wake them up in the morning – that's bad. They need to be imaged. If they start having a seizure or they wake up and their headache is worse or they start having projectile vomiting, again, these things in young, healthy kids, relatively and younger adults, they're not going to be that subtle. So no, don't wake everyone up. Sleeping is a really important part of the healing process. And in fact, I like to call it brain rest. So for the young lady who comes in and she hit her head, that we've been talking about for the first 48 to 72 hours, we want her to do as little as possible. And one of the main parts of that, she certainly shouldn't be driving, and anything that involves a video screen. So TV, movie, smartphone, Snapchat, Instagram, um, whatever cool apps I'm too old and lame to know about. But anything that involves a video screen is bad because it really stimulates the brain. If you sprain your ankle, you don't want to go out and run a marathon. If you sprain your brain, you got to let it rest. Yeah, Matt, put away your Snapchat. Yeah. You're... Snapchat, there you go. You touched on, you touched on a point. I, I tried to look up the urban legend thing too, and I read that as long as the person is able to talk to you and they're not super confused or having any of these red flags that we talked about, vomiting or, you know, severely altered consciousness, if they're just like, yeah, you need to let these people rest, but probably somewhere along the line, somebody with like a real serious, like depressed skull fracture went to sleep after a concussion and didn't wake up because like it was a severe injury and like they shouldn't have let that person go without like working it up and getting a surgeon involved. I think that's probably what happened. I thought it came that's from a nursery exactly. rhyme, Matt. Yeah. I don't what's the nursery rhyme, Stuart? Do you know it? I Oh, you'll hear it you'll hear it later. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. And there are certain things that that are have higher association with that. And again, it's unlikely in someone who's at low risk for an intracranial bleed bleeding inside the head start with to just spontaneously start having it. So Okay. You know, you should take some comfort in that. Um, right. But waking someone up every hour or every two hours just makes everybody feel worse. I want to I, – I think there's two more things that I really want to cover for this interview. One of them is the kind of return to play protocol, and I'll also add in with that the return to school or return to work. So I think I want to talk about that next. And then if uh, at the end I want to talk a little bit about post-concussive symptoms and the post-concussive syndrome and – how we can manage that. 
Yeah, so generally, first you return to learn before you return to play. Mm. And it always helps a, a motivated athlete when you tell them, look, my job is not to keep you from playing the sport you love. It's to make sure it's safe so that they can go back as soon as it's safe. And a lot of kids who are motivated to play, if they've got the state championship coming up next week, they may not tell you that they're still having headaches or they still can't remember anything. They can't remember that, you know, April is a month because they want to play. So <clears throat> it's important that you're on their side and that they know that, that you're on their side. So what I do is, you know, there's, there's a little bit of debate now about how much you rest of them, how actively you get back and try and, and get them back to their regular life. And I think the answer is both. That important 48 to 72 hours of brain rest is huge. Uh, it is really, really huge. And kids who do that tend to get better faster. And there's a lot of good studies that point that out. Once that's done, you see how they're doing. If they can't stand bright light, if they can't get in the car and go to school, yeah, one really important thing to ask them is, how do you do in the cafeteria? What is the cafeteria? The cafeteria is loud, it's busy, and it's bright. And so it's going to have a lot of things that are going to cause symptoms in a lot of kids who've had these head injuries. So if you try and let them introduce it, have them go back to it after that 72 hours, see if they can do a half a day. If they can do a half a day, then kind of work up to a full day. You can do certain things to kind of help them get through the day. Say if the class is 50 minutes long and they can only last 40 minutes, just send a note saying, look, they can put their head down for the last few minutes of class. Or they leave class a couple minutes early and they go from one class to another before that massive throng of, of people trying to get from one class to another and not being tardy and getting jostled around so that they can kind of walk relatively unharmed between classes. Have them not eat in the cafeteria. Have them eat in a nice, quiet place. And if they're having a headache or they're having a problem, they can go to the nurse. They can take a Tylenol. They can take an Advil. They can rest for a little bit as opposed to missing the entire day. So you want them to get back to their routine activity. For work and for adults, it can be a little tougher, especially since a lot of adults spend their whole day on the computer. So that's something that can really set things off. So you want to do it, give them a little bit of rest initially, and then see how they do. Can they do 20 minutes at a time? Can they do 40 minutes at a time? Can they do three hours a day? Instead of three hours all at once, can they do 40 minutes, take a 20-minute break, do another 40 minutes, take another break, take another 40 minutes, do another break? And if so instead of spending the same amount of time in one chunk trying to split it up into smaller pieces oftentimes will work better. Cognitively speaking, when they're back to normal and they're able to do their work, at that point we can start advancing them on a return to play where you're slowly increasing their activity and the complexity of their activity. And as long as they're remaining symptom-free, you can keep advancing them. From my reading, that was like, there. there's a CDC website actually that it's for parents and teachers to to look at as a resource and it had they they had specific steps for the return to play that were progressively more and more until you get to full contact eventually but they were every 24 hours you advance if there was no symptoms is that in practice are you actually doing that yeah so again first they have to be able to return to learn right before i start advancing them to play return to play and now, some of them, so 
and those return those those steps to get back is first there's just simple aerobic activity for 15 20 minutes if they tolerate that then the next day they can do a little bit more intense aerobic activity if they tolerate that then they can start moving side to side they can start doing some strength building some calisthenics some weights if they tolerate that they can start practicing and then if they tolerate that they can start playing now let's say they're up to the point where they're doing some lateral movements some start and some stop and they start getting a headache and they start getting dizzy and they stop and they go back to the last 24 hours where they weren't having symptoms so that would have been aerobics so then they start again. So the next day, now they're at aerobics again. And if they tolerate that, then they go back. If they have to go back more than twice, I want to see them. I don't clear them automatically. So if they have to go back more than twice, it usually means they're not ready to advance to even practice. That That's a really helpful summary. I, I had no idea how to counsel patients on that. And that's, you know, I feel like now I could actually take a pretty good stab at it and, and have some resources to point people to as well. All those steps and that kind of return to play are fairly standardized, but you just have to know how to explain what that means to everybody. So those steps are there, and there's a lot of good resources that have, and almost all of them have the same exact steps. At this point, I want to go back to our case. We took, we took this young lady, my sister, through her concussion. She slowly returned to learn. She's a teacher. Then she returned to play. She plays uh, multiple different sports, and she comes back. Let's say we didn't do it right, and she's coming back saying she feels more irritable, a little fatigued. She's having some sleep difficulty. What, what are we going to do from here, and can you kind of talk about the post-concussive sim- uh, symptoms and the post-concussive syndrome and how you approach it? I'm a little bit confused about post-concussive syndromes implying someone's had a concussion, the concussion's resolved if people are still having symptoms. (laughs) Some symptoms can take a year to resolve. So I don't think it's so much a post-concussive. I think it's a concussive. And so when they resolve, they resolve. You know, some people resolve in in two days. Some people resolve in two weeks. And, and, and I mean, the average teenager takes somewhere around 10 days to resolve. So, you know, the idea that two days from now they're going to be fine is is really unusual. And then some of them, probably about 85-90% are resolved by six to eight weeks, but that means that there is a percentage that takes more than six weeks to resolve, and, you know, sometimes it's a year. So so there are a couple things that can kind of drag things on, especially if they're having re-injuries, but that's a that's a separate question. So in the case of this patient, you want to make sure that she's resting, you want to make sure that she's not re-injuring, and you want to kind of maximize what you can do. I love to put people on vitamin C, CoQ10, vitamin D, and omega-3. Um, it's good for the brain, and they should probably take that for a light for the next uh, six months anyway. And then if there's specific medications that they need, we shouldn't be afraid to use them. So if her main symptom is headache and it's responsive to Tylenol, we can give her Tylenol. You know, I'm not – I know that theoretically – uh, non-steroidals and we'll call it Advil uh, can cause some bleeding issues but really I think it's pretty small chance and if that's what works and they're not taking too much of it then that's okay if they're having a lot of behavioral changes if they're having a lot of anxiety or depression you can use antidepressants there's nothing wrong with that I wouldn't use hypnotics and I wouldn't use benzodiazepams uh, but 
uh, antidepressants can can really help. And for the person who's just feeling mentally foggy, amantadine can also be a very helpful medication and usually tolerated very well. I wanted to swing back so, to the vitamins. Oh, real quick before we get to the medications, can you? Where did you? Is the vitamin cocktail? Could you, is that expert opinion or is there? Is where did where did you come up with that regimen? I think that if if you look at a lot of uh, the sources that give vitamin and what things are good for, you know, those are ones that there's at least a reasonable amount of data that says those are good for the brain. So, you know, there are a couple things that we think are probably right. I mean, other than, you know, treating scurvy with vitamin C, <laughs> uh, which we know is that that's a good thing. Yeah. But, you know, we think CoQ is good for the heart, uh, CoQ10. And, and um, vitamin C, you know, again, these, if you just, I, I don't have a particular source, but when you start looking at vitamin supplementation and traumatic brain injuries, these are the ones that keep popping up. And they're certainly not harmful, uh, and I think there's decent evidence that says they could be helpful. Excellent. Thank you. Shreya, you had a question? Yeah. You went into the treatment a little bit, and I just wanted to say I've seen um, some remarkable results starting patients on some treatment. Granted, it's only been like an N of three, um, but uh, some, some of my patients who've had post-concussive depressive symptoms as well as really significant headaches. Amitriptyline kind of was like this uh, magical drug for them. And it was really remarkable to see how how better they felt. Um, can you give us a guideline in terms of like, when do you start thinking about starting a medication and then for how long kind of coach us on that? Sure. So right up front, I don't mind medicating for a headache and for nausea right away. Um, you know, if someone's feeling miserable, Okay, you know, you give them some Tylenol. You're not going to mask a subdural hematoma with Tylenol. So, and, you know, if someone's having projectile vomiting because they have an anatomic injury, you know, you're not going to mask that one with some, you know, Zofran or Dansteron. So, so using them to make someone feel better, to let them get a little bit of rest, something for their headache, uh, something for their nausea, those are things that I will use right away. When we start talking about antidepressants, when we start talking about things like amantadine or other medications for alertness and for concentration, um, those, unless something is really severe or they have a history of depression in the past and they were probably and they were on something before, I wait at least a couple weeks. And my feeling is that most, not all, most kids are going to be better if you give them a couple weeks. So the ones that tend not to get better still look crummy at two weeks. And so at that point, you start thinking about, okay, do I need to use something more? And so somewhere between that two-week and a month period, depending how they're doing, if they're not getting better but they're not getting worse, is when I start doing it. I don't really want to put someone on a medication or, for that matter, do some specific physical therapy, um, some of the oculovestibular therapies, which are expensive and time-consuming, and you've got to go there and you've got to get it done, if they're going to be fine in two weeks anyway. So that's the conversation I'll have with them, and I'll put it to them that way. I'll say, look, these are some of the things. These, are, I think, are associated with the injury itself. Let's give it a little bit of time. If you're not getting better or things are getting worse, whatever, we may consider using some of these physical therapies or some of these medications. But really, other than headache, other than nausea, at least a couple weeks. 
I wanted to jump in with another urban legend question. Stuart, do you have a question? So, so, so Evan, um, what about the second hit theory? Has that ever really been verified? Absolutely. It's called second impact syndrome. Okay. And so from the urban legend perspective, uh, you know, Tommy, Tommy is playing wide receiver and he took a monster hit Friday night and, you know, he didn't really look right uh, over the weekend, but not crazy bad. And then Mm -hmm. he's practicing Monday and they're doing some light drills and he gets this just tiny little bump and unfortunately he falls to the ground dead. And so it's a pretty rare phenomenon, uh, the second impact syndrome that is fatal. Uh, But there's no doubt in my mind that the second hit is really responsible for a lot of the problems that we're seeing, both the more severe short-term and the cumulative stuff long time. The the second hit thing too, I from my reading, most concussions resolve like 90% or so within the first 10 days, especially sports related, the, the younger population. But it's very risky if they get a second, if they go back to play too early, basically. You're absolutely right. But with the second hit, everyone thinks, oh, a couple of days, you're back to normal. So I think a lot of the second hit, second hit um, injuries that we see are probably because the concussion is not completely resolved. Mm-hmm. And so even though we think, oh, you know, most kids, they're better after a week or they're after 10 days. But what if they're one of those that took eight weeks, not two weeks? So their threshold is lower. So they're more susceptible to injury in the first place. So mm-hmm. there's that one. And then the other one is the long term. So if you've had one concussion, you are a little bit more susceptible. Your risk of getting another one is a little bit higher. If you've had two, your risk of getting a third is a little bit higher. If you've had three, your risk of getting another one is a little bit higher. And so I do not have a single piece of unified literature on this, but my general rule of thumb is when I'm talking to these kids is that First of all, it doesn't matter if you're looking at a college scholarship or, or a, a great contract with the pros. It's not going to happen with a broken brain. So never mind all the CTE and really bad long-term stuff. So your brain needs to work if you want to be have a life. And so <clears throat> for me, two concussions in a season, you're done for the season. Three concussions in a sport, and you have to ask yourself seriously, what is it about me and this sport that we're not getting along? And maybe there's another sport for me, or maybe I shouldn't be playing this sport. Now, again, I can't point to a single piece of literature, but that's my feeling reviewing and knowing the literature the way I do. And for me, that's kind of my threshold. Also taking mm-hmm. into consideration that you know, good things come from playing sports too. Not everybody walks away with head injuries. And there are other things to be gained as well. So just taking all sports away is not a good thing because, I mean, what are we going to do? Take football away and, of course, girls' soccer because that, that concussion rate approaches football. Of course, hockey can't go. Lacrosse has got to go. Baseball, basketball has got to go. Cheerleading, that's a top five sport for concussion. Mm-hmm. That's got to go. So we can all become a – we can all exercise our thumbs and become coach potatoes and video game players. <laughs> but you didn't mention rugby, so we're okay. <laughs> Rugby's good. You know, my son was too he he he, was, he felt he was too small for football and when he went to college he played rugby. And uh he That's really crazy. really enjoyed it. It's like the same thing with less pads. What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> so 
Here's what I tell people about football and rugby. They're great sports, and you can take a lot from them. And But if you don't have a passion for the game, it's the wrong game to play. And if you think of things kind of like when I was a kid, we didn't wear seatbelts, right? So you guys have probably no idea what I'm talking about, but we used to take the seatbelts. They just had lap belts, and we would shove them down into the cushions beside <laughs> us because no one would ever wear a seatbelt. And then somebody said, no, seatbelts are good. And, of course, other people said, no, you know, they cause internal bleeding. But now the, the mountain of evidence clearly shows that you're safer in a car when you're wearing a seatbelt than when you're not. So we can take that same approach with football and with soccer. We can say, look, if you practice proper technique, if you get your head out of the tackling equation, if you learn the proper technique to tackle, which only takes two hours, if you learn the proper uh, practicing technique, like, for example, at Dartmouth. If you go to school at Dartmouth, you will not tackle another Dartmouth player because they practice the right way. They don't do a lot of live hits. They practice on dummies. They have these remote control tackling dummies. I mean, even the NFL in a 16-week season only has 13 live practices. So your typical high school coach who drives these kids with live track tackling drills every single day is putting your kids at a little bit of risk. It's not the best way to do it. So if we take advantage of what we know, better mm -hmm. equipment, better conditioning, better techniques, we can reduce not just head and catastrophic neck injury, but all injuries by 40%. So why shouldn't we take advantage of what we know to make these sports safer, just like we take advantage of wearing a seatbelt? Now, this kind of begs the next question that we had on this, and it's a good segue. Do you think that we as physicians are morally obligated to counsel an athlete who continues to have, or let's say they're on that third concussion, are we morally obligated to counsel them to give up that sport? And if so, how would, I mean, you, you kind of talked to us about that, but let's say for, for, for us who, who, who don't do this on a day-to-day -day basis, would you just recommend that we send them to a concussion expert to talk to them? You know, that's a tough question. I, I don't have the answer to that. I think, you know, if you're confident in your decision-making skills and you're confident in your diagnosis, and, you know, some calls are easy calls. I mean, you, you know, it's, it's the subtle ones that are a little bit harder, harder. But, you know, clearly someone's had a head injury. They have significant, they have a concussion. They have significant symptoms. They've missed a significant amount of school. They went back to play. They get another one. They finish out the season. Then the beginning of the next season, they have another one. And so, you know, yeah, I think we are obligated to talk to them and not just the student, but the parents. And you get all sorts of dynamics. You get a lot of times just bringing up the conversation. You'll have the kids say, you know, I really don't want to play. And then, you know, dad's like, yeah, I want you to play. It's a great game. Or, <laughs> you know, you'll get the kid who wants to play. And the parents are like, geez, I wish you would tell him he can't play anymore. It's like, ma'am, he, he just has a broken toenail. He, he can go back. But, you know. You, you get all over the board, but it's a decision. It's a decision that you have to make with not just the, you know, it, when we're talking about high school kids, when we're talking about teenagers, you got to involve the parents. And I do think we are morally obligated. We, you know, if we knew they were doing something destructive in their life, if they were taking drugs or they were, um, you know, take your choice, but we would talk to them about that. If we knew that they weren't wearing a seatbelt, we'd say, hey, we really think you should wear a seatbelt. And so you'd have to bring it up. Don't be afraid to ask those hard questions. And if you feel that it's wrong for them, then don't be afraid to bring it up. And I think we are obligated. 
you know, look at the numbers. Not everybody who plays a sport takes with them a lifelong injury. In fact, most don't. And head injuries are no different. But if someone keeps blowing out their knee, at some point you say, you know, this is the wrong sport for you. Evan, I think this is a great spot to get your take-home points, and we're, we're going to wrap up. This has been awesome. I, I think we could probably talk for another hour or two about concussions, but I, I think we got some really good clinical pearls for the audience. What would be your favorite one or two take-home points that you wanted people to get from this talk? Well, first of all, thanks for, for having me on, and I think what you're coming to realize is it's really hard to shut me up sometimes. <laughs> Um, you're doing a great job. <laughs> I, I would take away that this is a serious injury and we are learning way more about it now. And we know more about it now than we did two years ago or five years ago. And when I was a kid, ah, you gotta, you gotta, you, you know, you got your bell rung, rub some dirt on it, go back. <laughs> and we know that that's not the case. Okay. We know that kids blow out their, their ACLs. We know that, you know, there's little sprained ankles and there's big sprained ankles. And just because it's easier to see or a broken wrist or a broken ankle or a laceration doesn't mean that something we can't see is any less severe or any less important. So we have to be on the lookout for it. We have to let the kids know that they need to be on the lookout for it and that they just shouldn't be, oh, no, don't tell anyone because then they won't let you play. You know, the C word. There are some schools where they just don't want to hear the C word because that means that someone can't play. And so be aware of it. Don't be afraid of it. Treat it like any other injury. And again, you know, let's maximize what our kids can do and let's not take their sport away from them, but let's let them go back as soon as it's safe for them to go back. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I will let you know this will post online in the next two or three weeks here. Okay. That's been really, it's been really fun. Quite a ringer. (laughs) Okay. Thanks very much, guys. All right. Take care. Bye. Stuart, do you have any sort of like recap stuff that you wanted to, or Shreya, is there anything you think we missed that you wanted to highlight here? I think um, just having some type of baseline neurocognitive testing and following up on that in a longitudinal fashion is useful. And I, I think that that can't be overstated, at least to understand uh, where you know, where these deficits are and to ensure that they are either plateauing or continuing to improve to show um, what the ultimate functional capacity is going to be once they've gotten over the TBI. Because ultimately, it, it's going to be difficult to tell once they've uh, – wh- wh- where is that traje- trajectory going to leave them? And so it's important to understand where is their ultimate functional capacity going to be at. So I think for me, the biggest take-home points are, are the kind of the patient education, which um, Dr. Ratner did so well in terms of really kind of saying what brain rest is. Because definitely, especially in New York City, where mm-hmm. some of my patients have lower health literacy, that, that could be meant, uh, people can take that so many ways. And he really explained right. that really well. And then that return to play protocol and having resources on hand, I'm really excited to kind of do my due diligence and make sure um, I'm really explaining it as well as I can. Mm-hmm. I I personally liked the, like the physical exam description. Uh, just I love watching people do a neurologic exam. Uh, I always yeah. make my team demonstrate them on rounds just because it's people always do them differently. I like everybody does a different neuro exam. At least some little nuance that I'll pick up. And he he ever like everything he said was something that was 
pretty much new to me for the most part. But I think that's the best thing about um, talking to specialists is you get a sense of what their exam is like. And I think from like a primary care perspective, it really helps um, kind of because especially because physical exams now like a lost art in some regards. So that's really helpful for me. Don't tell that to Dr. Williams or Paul Williams, as we call him, because uh, Williams uh, went to some special conferences. He's he's all about the physical exam. Oh, so, uh, Paul, we miss you tonight, buddy. I think at this point we can probably move to the outro, though. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up for our mailing list where you you will receive every Monday a PDF copy of our excellent show notes, which we work very hard on. And uh, once in a while, Dr. Stuart Brigham and I will uh, have a a recap video. Yes, this is off the cuff. It's much more interesting. He has it memorized. And uh, yeah. Doctor, once in a while, Dr. Brigham and I will do a, uh, a video recap, which may or may not appear on Facebook Live. So stay tuned for that. And finally, we're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your input. So please send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. <laughs> I had to get ahead of you. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's fun. Yeah. Oh. You had to point that out or else no one else would have picked up on that. <laughs> That's right. And I, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And with us, special guest host. Dr. Shari Trebetti. Good night. Excellent. And good night. And good night. no Paul. No Paul.